I don't think that our community is so diverse and and so big that I don't think we always have to go back to the same people. This comes to how do we choose our guideline authorship? And I do think to some degree there should be more transparency on how we choose authors and how we try to give other people opportunities. And I, I think that that's when you dive into our paper, you see that those are some of our recommendations for the future is that we want more transparency, more objective criteria for authorships in our guidelines, but with also an eye towards equity, diversity, and inclusion in the guidelines themselves, and in, also in our chairs, because we did find that when women were chairs of guidelines, there was definitely more diversity in the guidelines. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD, Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. So we've been wanting to do this one for a little bit. And because of our conflicting schedules, we haven't had a chance to do this um, episode, which is, you know, I think um, it is both celebratory uh, for the paper that Dr. Rai published in Journal of the American Heart Association was mentored by Dr. Gulati. And, you know, what I believe is, is a very important paper. Uh, and we're going to talk more about the paper because this episode is focused on that paper. But before we begin, uh, just uh, brief introductions. I have with me on today's show, Dr. Devesh Rai and Dr. Martha Gulati. Um, Dr. Devesh Rai is a first-year cardiology fellow at Rochester General Hospital. He also has a significant role with CardioNerds, which all of us know is a popular cardiology podcast show. Um, Devesh is the um, deputy editor for the Journal Club section for Cardio Nerds. And Dr. Gulati, Dr. Martha Gulati, of course, needs an introduction. Um, she is the luminary cardiologist, has, is, is widely published, and um, you know has been a source of inspiration for not only women in cardiovascular medicine, but also men like myself and Devesh and has mentored Devesh on this important manuscript. So with that introduction, Devesh and Martha, welcome on the show, and thank you for doing this for us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, for Dr. Kalra, for the kind introduction. Okay, great. So I'm going to start uh, by asking Martha the first question, uh, and that is um, um, sort of, I think, a, an important theme for the paper we're, we're going to discuss on this episode. Uh, the paper is Gender Differences in International Cardiology Guideline Authorship, and it's a comparison of the U.S., Canadian, and European guidelines. Uh, but before we delve into the findings of uh, the study, which was published in Journal of the American Heart Association, Martha, you you also recently chaired and first authored the Tespain guidelines. Um, so who better than you to actually describe and maybe educate us? Because, you know, I don't think I know a lot about the guideline develop, development process, and I, I'm sure um, our listeners would be keen to understand as to what really goes behind the scenes when it comes to guideline development from from societies like the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association, among others. 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I would say until I was involved in the guidelines, especially chairing guidelines, you learn a lot about this, you know, what goes on in the background of every guideline selection. And I would say that, you know, probably it's evolved over time. And of course, our study took place from 2006 to 2020. And I, you know, I can't tell you specifically differences way back when, but what I can tell you about guidelines currently, at least for the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association, is there is an increased emphasis now on making sure we have a diverse workforce on the guidelines. Of course, they want experts, people in specific areas, whatever the topic is. Of course, that should be first and foremost, because why would anyone actually believe the guidelines if there's not an expert for the content. But a little bit of guidelines, you know, depending on the other writing groups that they will invite, for example, for the chest pain guidelines, the ACC and the American Heart Association were the leaders of the guidelines, but we invited our partners. So for example, American Society of Echocardiography was included, SCCT, um, the cardiac MRI people and the nuclear people were all invited to the table, as were our emergency physicians and our interventional colleagues, where everybody was, you know, everyone that needed to be at the table, we tried to include at the table. Now, as a society, do we get to dictate who they they nominate from those committees? No. But what we get to do is we ask them for more than one nomination. And a little bit of how you select people to be on your writing group, there might be many things. It may be diversity may be part of it. Um, and, and whether we're talking about people underrepresented in medicine or women um, as well, you might be looking at them from that aspect. You also want to make sure they have the expertise that they're going to be able to do the work. And quite honestly, sometimes we have to make sure our guidelines represent people without conflict of interest. So you have to have at least 51% of people on your writing group that do not have a conflict of interest. And some guidelines have gone to other extremes and said, nobody can have a conflict, but we were given the number 51%. And, and so you probably tended towards getting a little bit better than that because you never know if somebody might take up a conflict of interest while you're writing these guidelines. Um, so those, those are all the many variables that come into play um, when you're looking at your writing group. But to think it, that a chair entirely gets to sort out who gets to be on the guidelines would be wrong. Uh, at least that, that was my perspective. I, you know, initially when I showed up, I was like, oh, I get to invite the people that I think are the experts. No, that's not exactly how it works. Um, you know, thank you for um, sort of educating us and sort of giving us a, um, a bit of an idea of what happens behind the scenes. Uh, you know, it certainly is a very involved process, like you mentioned. Um, and I think what's, what's really good about it is, you know, inviting other societies to be on the table. I think that's super important. Um, so that you have all the, you know, key opinion leaders or stakeholders, you know, at the same table making the, the right decisions for, for this to be, 
um, sort of immortalized in a document, like a guideline document, which is a very important document, is is downloaded and read by clinicians at the bedside taking care of patients. And it, it really, um, you know, informs uh, patient care and, and probably affects patient care. So I think it's an extremely responsible position to be in. Uh, and I'm sure it's a ton of work now. Before we sort of get into our paper, um, and this is for you again, Martha. What do you think is a typical timeline for a guideline document from from the time of its inception to the time it actually gets published? What is the what is the mean or median time frame, and how 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 hard it is to sort of keep accruing more um, evidence into the guideline document because I'm you know because like evidence generation does not wait for the guideline document to be published, right? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And I would say every country does things a little differently. I would say the European guidelines are much faster. They they put a group together, they work on writing, and in less, I, less than six months often, they have a published document. In the United States, it's a lot more bureaucratic and it's taken a lot longer. And there's been complaints about that, too. I would say our chest pain guidelines took us four years. And any time there's a controversy, as there was in our guidelines, it takes longer. Everyone knows about the hypertension guidelines that we were waiting for so long for JNC, what was supposed to be JNC 8 that got nicknamed JNC late because it was many, many, many years. And we same with the lipid guidelines, you know, the same thing. They, there was a lot of controversy about them and, and that caused, you know, you have to work out, if you can't even get a consensus in your writing group, that's part of the issue. If people reviewing on the review panel, and you get to have some say on the reviewing panel, but you want people to criticize them before they go public. And if they find problems with what you've written, you also have to go back sometimes to the drawing table. But the problem with U.S. guidelines, in my humble opinion, is that it does take us a long time. And then by the time they come out, you already have other papers you wish you could already, you know, add to or maybe even change your guidelines based on something. The Canadian Cardiovascular Society, which we also included in our analysis here, I know less about in terms of how what their timelines are. But these are things that, of course, you know, play into whatever guidelines coming out. Sometimes it's straightforward. Sometimes the task is simple. We want a guideline on some, you know, very narrow part of how should we practice. Sometimes when our guidelines are as vague as a symptom, which is what the chest pain guidelines were, they were the first symptom-based guideline, that can be a much harder task. So, you know, it, I mean, we might be criticized for how long we took to write the chest pain guidelines, but we've been very public about why we were, went back to the drawing board as well. Yeah, no, th- thank you again for answering that so eloquently. And, you know, I certainly don't envy any of the guideline chairs to, uh, you know, to be in that position because it's, it's just a lot of, um, you know, like you said, it's a bureaucratic process and, sort of everybody needs to be on the same page and there's resolution and controversy. And then there is, uh, you know, criticism or critiquing by the reviewers. And 
it's just an it's an involved process and i'm i'm not sure i i probably have the patience to to endure such a process but maybe i will in the future i'm not i'm not even certain but with that preamble thank you so much for for educating us martha but i think it's it's a good segue into asking devesh the question about the the paper that he published and you know thank you so much for considering me to be a part of the author panel a very esteemed author panel um you know from from europe and as well as from from the from north america uh devesh what what was it that um that inspired this question at the first place for you as a as a first author as a primary investigator on the study why how did you think about this question i mean it, it's a great question to to answer and you you did it beautifully but what wh- how did you think about this question at the first place so uh i mean the crux of this question mainly goes to like uh, if i if i go back like about the underrepresentation of women in medicine and women in cardiology like i'm married to to a physician my wife is a third year resident and back in my medical school like or in a class of 75 people only 19 were guys and all everybody else was like women so back in medical school i never felt like okay there's a underrepresentation of women in medicine for some reason because the boys were underrepresented in the in the in that but when i came to us to do like residency and medical residency and i was getting training and i saw that a lot of times like i'll have senior residents who are women and the patients will feel will direct their questions to me for some reason or even at times like nursing will direct the questions to me and i felt this disparity among men, among men and women in medicine that uh, even that even as i am an intern and i don't know most of most of the questions they are directed to me rather than to my senior resident who is a woman and she knows much more than me and probably i every time i i reach out to her to and to answer those questions so i started to observe that and it continued to happen and then uh, i looked at uh, then i looked into data and i saw some papers that when women treat women the outcomes are much better or even and it goes even for like underrepresented race race and ethnicity too like when spanish speaking providers men treat spanish speaking patients the outcomes are better and that's where i was like okay let's take a look at guideline authors like how and that's we are doing at the patient level but how are we how are we doing it from the documents which is which are prepared by like authors how are we doing at that level because uh, as it has been shown in the past research that people who treat from the same and background the outcomes are better and i wanted to do this for a while and while i was in second year of medical i think residency and i discussed with this with a couple of friends and then they were like no you don't want to make enemies because if you say they are cardiology is a male dominant field you should not be doing that and i continued to think for one year and then i reached out to dr kulati and dr michos that i want to do this and the response was like great that okay we should do this for sure uh nobody is going 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 to like blame you for uh, for doing this and uh, after that we uh, we started to look into this more and more and we published this paper and until now like uh, i have not had a single bad comment from anybody that you are a guy why you're writing about women in medicine and women in cardiology in fact i have always got like people uh, like from you and other people that you know this is a great topic you should keep working on this topic so that's how i got interested and uh, i want to continue working in this field for sure and and i would add to that if i could that dev really i was kind of surprised when he said that this is the topic he wanted to look at and dive into and we've written quite a few papers now in this area but i would say it really was under his you know his leadership i i just got to sit back and enjoy the ride he actually had this question and 
wanted to dive into it. And there's nothing greater to see our next generation of he's for she's really asking the right questions. Because I think what Dev really wants is to make a level playing field for everyone. Yeah, no, I mean, it it was a great topic. I mean, I think when the manuscript in its earlier iteration came to me for commenting as um, an invited co-author, you know, I, I was quite frankly honored. I was in awe of the topic. And uh, I think just the, just the way it was, it was put together and done was, was, was great. So, you know, Devesh and, you know, Ashish, you know, with whom I've worked very closely with, so, you know, to both of you, congratulations. Um, and again, thanks for including me. So, so in this, in this analysis, Devesh, you, you include, so the, it's over a decade. So it's from 2006 to 2020, like Martha said earlier in the show. And you've included quite a bit of guidelines. I mean, you've included 80 ACC AHA guidelines. There are 64 Canadian cardiovascular society guidelines and there are 59 European guidelines. Um, so that's a lot of analysis to be done. And, and then you sort of, what you did was you basically looked at trends in inclusion of women across the spectrum of all these guidelines. So do you want to walk us through this process? You know, how did you go about picking these guidelines and how did you put them together and, and what you, what you found? So essentially I'm sort of, I mean, you know, who I'm, I'm sort of preaching to the choir, like you direct the journal club section. So we're essentially doing a journal club on your paper um, um, so, you know, just go over the methods and the, and the results, because I think these are very important results to be shared with our listenership. Yeah. So, so finding the guidelines was, was kind of the easy part because, uh, first of all, the ECC, either it's ECC or AHA, getting guidelines from Canadian Cardiovascular Society or European guidelines, they're publicly available. And, um, for ACC and AHA, they mo- on, on the ACC website, they put only the recent guidelines and they remove the older guidelines which have been which are currently not in use but they always cite the older guidelines in their current guidelines and we looked also look at the pubmed to find the, all the guidelines so that we are not missing any uh, the reason why acc has 80 guidelines because we also included the acls and bls guidelines which are published essentially by aha um, so that's why we have a lot of guidelines in that and then for canadian guidelines they keep a bibliography of all their guidelines published in the past a past couple of decades on their website so that was very easy to find and same thing for europeans too it is available on their website thereafter the the, the most tough toughest part was like finding the gender of all the authors um, so we had like a, for every guidelines there was there were two uh, two authors from our paper who looked at the gender of the gender of the authors and primarily like every guideline has two committees and we just included the committee which writes the guidelines like acc has writing group and a task force um, similarly, if we talk, and this writing group is the one uh, which writes the guidelines, and Dr. Gulati can correct me if I'm wrong on this. Um, and for Canadian guidelines, they have a primary panel and a secondary panel. So essentially, the primary panel of Canadian guidelines is something similar to the writing group of ACC guidelines. And uh, for the European guidelines, they, they call them task force and document reviewers, and task force is the one who writes the guidelines. So for what we observed that for all these guidelines, like the second second group, like the task force for ACC or secondary panel for CCS and document reviewers for ESC, they remain same for the year. They get appointed for one year or two year, depending on candidates, they get appointed for three years. And they 
they find that they uh, they assign the chair and they i think uh, they choose the writing group the people who will be writing the guidelines along with um, every every society is different like approach to write the guidelines and uh, of course there's a lot of um other things which we don't know like how it goes uh, to choose the chair here and how um, definitely they are the, they are the experts in that area and so once we found all these authors we looked at mostly uh, we googled them and we looked at their social media profile or the university bio page to find out what gender they are and uh, and th- that person by in pairs independently and we made sure that there is concordance like if, if there was not then we went back and looked at it again um we were able to find the gender of all all the authors and um, essentially from you know, from acc we found from the 80 guidelines we, we found that there's total 88 authors and out of those only 28% are women in over you know, over 15 years span period for canadian guidelines there was 64 uh, guidelines and we have 988 authors and 26% women and if we go for european guidelines there are only 59 guidelines with 1157 authors and 16% were women so if we see like that like acc had the highest number of women and followed by ccs at european guidelines um the next thing so finding uh, this is this was our, one of the one of the major aspect where we looked at okay the the disparity exists and definitely it's about mm, on an average if we think like that it's like 25% are women and 75% are women so that was one of the or, or primary findings uh the next thing what we chose to do is we also looked at like we looked at multiple things but the one interesting aspect what we looked at is how's the trend from like 2006 to 2020 like from yearly changes how it is um and the, so in acc we found like the, we started in 2006 at with 12.6% and now we are at 42.6% in 2020 and the stats was statistically significant with p value of 0.005 um and when we looked at european guidelines it was 10.1% and the 2006 and went up to 25.8% um and the p was 0.04 with the average annual percentage change was like 6.6%. Uh however when we looked at canadian guidelines the interesting aspect was the, the canadian in, then guidelines started really high 20% in 2006 and went up to 36% in spite of the number per percentage looks like there's a 16% change but the p value was not significant for that as it was 0.09 um so that was one of the our uh, main findings where we looked at the trend over 15 years and how we are doing um among all these guidelines yeah do you have any comments on the on the results there martha um yeah i mean you know you have to we have to take these with what how many women are in cardiology i mean you know we know that our numbers have really not grown significantly even from 2006 to 2020 it's been a very small increase so we we're understanding that you know this is to reflect on where we are and where we can go because we know that another issue that comes into where are the experts who have been leading the clinical trials well we know from other work done by Harriet Van Spall and and others have looked at this um that you know we don't have as many women leading clinical trials so of course they're not going to be asked if you're not leading the clinical trial you're not going to be asked to necessarily be on guidelines so there's a lot of issues that weigh into these numbers 
Additionally, I mean, although it looks like our numbers are increasing, especially in the United States, we went, as Deb said, from 12.6% in 2006 women to 426 in 2020. That's a remarkable change. And I think in the U.S. we've been doing better. But I think that often we would see on guidelines where there's a lot of MDs who are men on guidelines, often the women might be PhDs, not to minimize PhD roles, but it's interesting that they'll go outside to search for a PhD, but there's also a lot of uh, cardiologists who are women that should also be considered when they are trying to make a more diverse workforce. The other part that I think Dev left out um, was just even repeat authors. And we did see this thing of repeat authorship over time, and, and it happens all over the world, partially because we update guidelines, we do more research, and we say, okay, we got to redo these guidelines. And sometimes they bring in people who were on the guidelines before, so they have a historical perspective and can help sort of shape what's changed, and, and that's important. But we even had in uh, the U.S. guidelines, so the ACCHA guidelines, there was one person who 20 times had been on guidelines. There's no such similar numbers for women. Most of the repeat authorships were actually in men, and often they were five or more, like, you know, they'd been on five or more guidelines. Now, it's one thing if everyone's an expert, if there's one person who is a really strong expert on multiple topics that they get invited to be on multiple guidelines. But I, I don't think that our community is so diverse and, and so big that I don't think we always have to go back to the same people. This comes to how do we choose our guideline authorship? And I do think to some degree there should be more transparency on how we choose authors and how we try to give other people opportunities. And I, I think that that's when you dive into our paper, you see that those are some of our recommendations for the future is that we want more transparency, more objective criteria for authorships in our guidelines, but with also an eye towards equity, diversity and inclusion in the guidelines themselves, and in, also in our chairs, because we did find that when women were chairs of guidelines, there was definitely more diversity in the guidelines. Wasn't that true, Dev? Yeah. So um, those were the next findings. What we saw is like for uh, like overall, if it's saw like um, for chair wise, like in ACC guidelines, only 22% of times women are chair. For Canadians, it's 16%. And for European guidelines, it's only 7%. But we also looked at like um, what if like women are does that impacts like how's the or uh, how's the composition and when women are chairing ACC guidelines, that forty eight percent of the authors were like women, and even when we even saw that like some you know, some guidelines have co chairs, like it's one men and other is women, and even in that situation there were more women included in the guideline committees, and this was true for like ACC and European guidelines, but not true for Canadian guidelines. So that was another interesting aspect that even though chair does not get to cherry pick like who comes on these guidelines, but there's some inherent bias or some uh, something like um, there, which when, it, when the when it, when it, when it, women is chair, there are more women on the guideline committees. So it's not like there are not women enough women to write guidelines. It's just that they don't get picked, picked often. 
that might be true. Yeah, no. So I, I, um, so it's it's fascinating that you know uh, they each independently, uh, you know, found this and uh, you know and in investigating the diversity with guidelines when we we reported a similar observation in trials that are being led by women in that that when women are first authors in randomized clinical trials the sub studies that are published from that trial you know for example a postdoc or a, or a secondary analysis um, from pre-specified endpoints women tend to share that first authorship position with you know, other women. Um, unfortunately, the same is not true for men. So when you would have a randomized clinical trial being published in the New England Journal or, for example, in JAMA, and then you have these sub-studies from these randomized clinical trials looking at pre-specified endpoints or, you know, certain diverse groups where, you know, the uh, the findings were different, Men who were first authors on the randomized clinical trial were first authors on these sub-studies also. Now, that was different with women. And that's something which we reported when we published this paper now, I think it was about a year ago, in JAMA Open. So it's it's kind of interesting that a similar theme comes across even when you are looking at guideline documents. Do you have any comments on that, Martha? No, I mean, you know, that is, I, <laughs> what, what can we say? We, we, I think we want as a community just these messages to get out so that everyone can be more inclusive. I, I don't, you know, it is true that women tend to be more inclusive and tend to, you know, invite other women to be part on their guidelines, tend to also look for more diverse people to be on their guidelines that are underrepresented typically in our cardiology community, but it, it needs to transcend who's the chair. And, and again, these are our statistics. We're just the reporters. Yeah, excellent. Now, uh, I'm going to um, also ask Devesh this question on subspecialties, because I think that's an important uh, component of the results section, the five-year trends in cardiology subspecialties, which has been uh, you know, reported in a very detailed fashion in the manuscript. And, you know, for those who are listening, we are going to be providing links to this publication um, in the in the show notes section. Um, so, you know, feel free to, to download the paper, um, you know, when you are listening to this episode. But Devish, um, do you have any comments on trends you reported in the cardiology subspecialties? Because... Again, you know, and this is from what has been reported and what's out there in that the the trickle effect and the dropout rate for women continues to increase, right? So the trick the, the, the trickle effect gets there is there is no trickle effect in subspecialties and the dropout rate for women continues to ex, continues to increase, meaning less and less women are pursuing subspecialties. I really hope that changes, but certainly in interventional cardiology, for example, I mean it's in single digits. Uh, you know, may, maybe the same is true for EP. I don't have the numbers up on me, but, and maybe you and Martha can expand on this. But what did you find with subspecialty guidelines? So when we looked at, so that's a really interesting question, Dr. Galra. And uh, like, as you said, like number, mostly the percentage of women in the interventional cardiology and EP is on the, on the lowest side compared to the other guidelines. 
and we'll, we'll look into like general cardiology versus subspecialties. Like overall in general cardiology, in almost this was true for almost every society. So I won't go into like num deep numbers, but in American guidelines, like in general cardiology, women are about 30%, but in pediatric and heart failure, they were close to 40% in US guidelines. And this was true for like Canadians too. Um, except in European guidelines, they're close to 27 and 15%. But if mainly if we talk about EP or interventional cardiology, um, the numbers are on the very lower side. Or in the EP, it was 22%. In interventional cardiology, only 19%. And if we think like that, it is comparatively higher than the number of women pursuing interventional cardiology right now um, in the as a fellowship because the numbers are close to 10% as a recent paper I saw it was like 10 or 12% uh, in the interventional and in EP it's close to 14, 15%, so definitely lower. And it has been proposed multiple times that what could be the reason why women shy away from interventional cardiology, electrophysiology, and there's a multiple explanation for sure, but a couple of which I have seen more prominent is like, okay, it's a very, very male dominant field, field. the hours are long, there's radiation exposure and um, not a good lifestyle. But the other interesting part, what we saw, uh, or we cited a couple of papers in our study is uh, as per a survey from like internal medicine residents and cardiology fellows that why people don't go to like all these specialties is lack of mentorship. And uh, uh, the other thing, what they saw is like they, they don't connect with somebody. So uh, there's very popular saying like, you can't be what you can't see. So that's why the one of, one of the proposals, what we proposed in our paper is like, we need to increase the visibility of the leadership. There is, there are more leaders in interventional cardiology, electrophysiology from women in cardiology. Um, there will be much more students uh, interested in pursuing these fields. And the other thing is like, we talk about leaky pipeline and trickle effect. So mostly like we need to st start the, actions not only at the stage of like cardiology fellowship or intermittent residency i think this goes all the way back to like medical school or even before that that we need to educate uh, students at uh, or insight interest at a very early age uh, for students that okay that cardiology is a, is a is an exciting field and we all love it and you guys all should try to go into this field rather than starting to educate uh, medical students or residents when they have already made up their mind. And because at that stage, you all, you already start to think about like, okay, what do you want to do? And uh, there is the bias effects of like cardiology, the male dominant field starts to grow on, grow on this women in medicine. So maybe if we start early, we can stop that bias effect. Well, and I, I would like to say that it's never been the work and it's never been the hours. I mean, that is not why, women don't go into cardiology and that's not why women don't choose EP or interventional cardiology. I mean, I, I think that really it's what Dev said was the latter explanation that they aren't mentored, they aren't uh, invited in and they don't see people that look like them. And sometimes that can be enough for them to say, well, then I, you know, if, if other women aren't doing it, then maybe it's just not the environment is is not for me or it's a toxic environment that, you know, they're not welcoming to women and then they don't go into those fields. But I think what was great about seeing in our guidelines is that like that there's actually more women 
represented in guidelines in EP and interventional cardiology than there actually are percent women um, in the field. And I think that those, our societies have been making a greater effort of trying to be inclusive and inviting more people to the table and recognizing that when we don't have women in the leadership positions, which guidelines are leadership positions, then their visibility will continue to be less. And the more that we can have them leading guidelines, leading trials, leading any aspect of our community, it can be a change because people will see them in these leadership positions and say, that could be me one day and maybe I will join. I do agree with Dev that we have to go way before even medical school. And we've, we've done programs and I've seen other people starting them, but we were one of the first programs when I was at Northwestern University. We started a program for inner city women, uh, for girls in high school. And we actually invited them to what we called cardiology camp for a week. And I've replicated this at all the places I've been where we've brought in people who might never have the opportunity to think about medicine as a career and show them what people do in the cardiology field. Literally every aspect, maybe some will become cardiologists, maybe some will become sonographers, maybe some will become dietitians. And I'm very fortunate to have followed the careers of many of these young women that have be gone on to do great things within the healthcare field, that maybe just showing them that there's a place for them and, and, and being able to see themselves in those careers makes a difference. And I think anybody who has these kind of programs going on throughout the country and throughout the world will really make a difference to changing the face of cardiology. So, so that's, that's a great comment, uh, Martha. So as, as a segue to what you said, you know, for someone who asks you the question, okay, um, you know, we, we get it, you know, DEIB, which is diversity, equity, inclu uh, inclusion and belonging has become the buzzword. We get it. Great paper. You, you know, you, we get the message, um, you know, but uh, I'm going to play the devil's advocate and I'm going to say that, okay, but despite us being non-diverse in your opinion, um, you know, we've still made great strides in car within cardiovascular medicine and cardiology and medicine overall. Why is why is diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging becoming so important now? Like, why is it why is it that people are talking about it so much now? Why is it that you know you guys are even publishing this paper now? Why now? And and why is it that diversity is so important? How would you respond to people? Yeah, I, I would say we've been talking about this for actually many, 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 many years. It has often fallen on deaf ears. And I think more recently, it we are changing as a culture and as a community to recognize that, you know, there are real issues. We haven't moved the needle as much as we need to in our cardiology community. And the American College of Cardiology has really put their money where their passion is to say, okay, how are we going to change it? We've done, you know, black men in cardiology, Hispanics in cardiology, women in cardiology. Now, basically people have been chosen in the internal medicine 
saying they're, they might be interested, well, let's bring you in and show you what it is and why it's a great career. And I think, you know, that outspoken, you know, advocacy for diversity and equity inclusion has really helped. I mean, I think it's creating a culture where people feel like, yes, I, I'm part of something bigger and I'm part of something that that needs me, that wants me. But I, I will say that, you know, for years we've been talking about this and why have we been talking about it? We didn't look like our patient populations. We take care of men and women. We take care of people of a variety of races in the United States and in other countries. Our world is much more global. And how can we appreciate the differences and, and when we continue to publish and report, women do less well after an acute myocardial infarction. Women are less likely to get guideline-directed care. Blacks uh, do worse after acute myocardial infarction. Hispanics have more diabetes and also do worse after acute myocardial infarction. South Asians do worse. Well, all of that, you know, we need... We need people to be helping us connect with those communities who look like our patients so they trust the cardiology community. I'm not saying that you have to treat somebody who looks like you, but I think by having a more diversified community, you become a better doctor, a better cardiologist, you appreciate the differences and the similarities, and you know how to communicate with people who are different than you. And we we have so many gaps to close, and we know that it's because as a community, we really haven't moved the needle quite the way we we should have. And I think that's why it's come to more light recently, is because everyone's talking about it, but nothing was happening. Let's see in the next few years now, now that we're really making these outward efforts to change the numbers, that we don't, you know, that all this work is either effective or it's not. I hope it's going to be effective. I really believe it's going to be effective. We've just been watching in the last few days, people matching and for uh, residency positions. And I've just been blown away by people of so many different backgrounds that were not reflected in all kinds of specialties that suddenly since we're talking about inclusion, since we're talking about diversity, since we're talking about equity, we're seeing changes in the new generation of, of physicians of every specialty. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's, a, that's a terrific answer. Thank you for speaking so passionately about this. I mean, there's a reason why I asked you this question, Martha. So thank you for doing justice to my question. That was, that was terrific. Um, any closing thoughts on the paper? Uh, any remarks? Anything you think I should have asked that I haven't asked about the paper? There's one more point just I'll add. I mean, as we talked about, like in the EPA, interventional cardiology, there is less women in cardiology, less women in overall. But if we talk about a pediatric cardiology or heart failure, there are almost 40% of women in the, on the guideline committee. So that just shows that we have women in cardiology and are in medicine who are interested. And as like heart failure has been like uh, traditionally called a, a women dominant field from, from Dr. Dr. Hayes and everybody else, um, and same because pediatric cardiology, because a lot of people who go to pediatrics, they go to pediatric cardiology or um, one of those things. So if we, as I said in earlier, that you can't be what you can't see. So if we continue to promote uh, 
we need to just promote and encourage women in medicine from all aspects to bridge the gap uh, from that's the last point for me. Yeah, and I would say my last point is we are making strides. These are better numbers. If you look at the time trends, particularly in the United States, we have made change and will continue to make change with a concerted effort. I, th I think that if there's people listening to this, if they're practicing cardiologists, um, to remember to remember why we want a diverse workforce and how it's going to be better for our patients. So invite people in, invite people from diverse backgrounds in, invite women in. Let's, let's be the change we want to see and what our patients really deserve. And then for people that are listening to this podcast who are still trying to figure out, you know, what do they want to do when they grow up and they are considering cardiology, I would tell them that this is your time, especially if you're a woman or you're from a diverse background that's underrepresented. We want you here. We're all ready to mentor you. We, it is the best career. It is the best specialty within medicine. And I, you know, we, we are here to encourage you and make sure you know you're welcome. Yeah, excellent. You, you, you ended the show with my favorite quote from Mahatma Gandhi, and that is, you know, be the change. Um, so uh, Dave and Martha, thanks again for, uh, for your time and for, um, you know, taking us through this, uh, important um, and excellent work from from both of you which was published earlier this year in journal of the american heart association you know like i said we are going to share this in our show notes um so do um, get a chance to open the paper when you are um you know listening to this podcast if you're driving that's obviously a separate issue but with that uh, i'm going to end uh, the show dave and martha thanks again and um you know we look forward to having you both on the show uh, sometime soon. No, thank, thank you for having us, Andrew. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.